You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I recently read that of the 195 countries on Earth today, 65 have declared their independence from England. That means that roughly one-third of the nations on Earth today have a holiday to celebrate the day that they kicked England out of their territory. Here in America, ours is the 4th of July. And since this episode publishes on Monday, July 4th, I thought it might be nice to do a special episode celebrating four American artworks. And for those AP art history students in my audience, pay attention because all four of these are on the AP study guide. I feel like who art ed? Who art ed? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and today we're going to be talking about four great works of art in honor of the 4th of July. To begin with, I think it's only appropriate to discuss a piece made by the people of tribes that were on this land before it was called America, and before Europeans had any notion of a continent on the other side of the Atlantic. The first piece I'm talking about today is a transformation mask. And as always, if you want to see images of the works, you can check out the website www.whoartedpodcast.com. As with so many cultures, the people native to the northwest coast of North America created some of their greatest works for ceremonial purposes. Imagine a giant roaring fire illuminating a man in a large eagle mask with a costume made of cedar bark. As he dances, the firelight flickers. The costume feathers move, and suddenly the eagle head breaks open into a completely different creature. The mask is a carved and painted sculpture, a status symbol, a costume element, and a simple machine all at once. Pulling the strings on the mask allows the wearer to move parts that effectively animate the mask and bring it to life in front of the gathered crowd. While different tribes had different customs and beliefs, a common theme among many groups was the belief that deceased ancestors roamed the world, transforming themselves in the process. Many animal transformation masks would contain crests for the numeme, forgive me on the pronunciation. Numeme is a word from the Quackwakawak people. They would use it referring to groups with a common ancestor. The idea was that the ancestral spirits would temporarily inhabit the body of the person wearing the mask. 
The physical transformation of the mask would be a powerful reflection of the spiritual transformation occurring during ceremonies where the masks were worn. There are also many myths related to animals and trickster gods. Now, when I talk about tricksters, the tricks may or may not be bad. A trickster is really a god, person, or other creature with hidden knowledge going against the normal rules. The raven is for example, is a constant trickster turning into other animals, often to help people by providing necessities like the sun, fire, salmon. The Thunderbird, shockingly enough, produced thunder and lightning. The lightning came from its eyes, and thunder was believed to come from the flapping of its wings. He would remove his bird skin to take on a human form. Now, moving on from First Nations to this nation's first president, I'm looking at a sculpture of George Washington. After the successful Revolutionary War, many state governments began to commission public art to commemorate the event. The Virginia General Assembly wanted a statue of George Washington for obvious reasons. He was a Virginian who had led the Continental Army to victory. He would also go on to become the first president of the United States. Well, technically, he was the first president elected under the Constitution of the United States. If you go back to the Articles of Confederation, which also called for a president, though the office looked different, John Hansen was the first president of the United States in Congress assembled under the Articles of Confederation, which was the predecessor to the United States Constitution. In 1784, so still in the Articles of Confederation days, before Washington would go on to become president, the governor of Virginia asked Thomas Jefferson to find an artist to sculpt a statue of George Washington. With America having just recently won its independence as a nation, it seemed only fitting that the author of the Declaration of Independence would be in Europe, looking for a French artist to send over to the States. Apparently, the people of the U.S. at that time could defeat the most powerful nation on earth, they could create a new form of government, but they just didn't have anyone who could create a good statue. Enter Jean-Antoine Houdon. That can't be right. Jean-Antoine Houdon? (laughs) I don't care if that's the wrong pronunciation, it is too fun not to say it that way. He was the most famous and accomplished neoclassical sculptor of the day. Now, neo means new, and classic means pretty much the opposite. Neoclassical artists were inspired by the ancient Romans. They were extremely serious about their craft. Neoclassicism was a reaction against the frivolous sort of Rococo movement. Um, That was kind of in the late Baroque era. Uh, Probably prime example would be Fragonard's The Swing, which I will link in the show notes. Neoclassical artists looked to the ancient Greek and Roman style for inspiration to make their work seem like something that had deep roots and would endure through the ages. Initially, Houdon was supposed to make his sculpture of Washington based on sketches by Charles Wilson Peale. Seemed kind of difficult to make a good 3D representation of a figure based on a 2D drawing. So instead, Houdon traveled thousands of miles and came to the U.S. in 1785. 
He and his two assistants got to work taking precise measurements. They made a mold of Washington's face and all of that. Houdon apparently made a bust of Washington while he was still in Virginia, but Washington hated it. Houdon had made it to mimic classic styling, but George Washington insisted on being depicted in more current clothing. So Houdon returned to Paris and began work on a full-size rendering in marble. He dated the statue to 1788, but that might have been a little overly ambitious. He didn't finish it until four years later. I like to imagine he was one of those artists thinking like, okay, if I set a deadline and etch it into stone, I will have to get my acts together and focus to finish this thing. He didn't. Well, he did eventually, like I said, four years later. And then it was finally delivered in 1786 to coincide with the completion of the Virginia State Capitol Rotunda. The portrait is beautiful. It is highly accurate in capturing not only his likeness, but his attitude. There's a wise aura about the figure in the statue. Washington stands in a classic contraposto stance, which is kind of like an ancient pose of a figure, essentially putting weight on one leg as the engaged leg and the other bent at the knee. It conveys a sense of movement within the figure. His left arm rests atop a bundle of 13 rods, a symbol of the United States motto, E Pluribus Unum, which means out of many, one. Now, as I referenced, uh, Thomas Jefferson was actually the one who located the artist for Washington's sculpture. But Thomas Jefferson had his own artistic chops. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Monticello was Thomas Jefferson's home. It was also his work of art. Jefferson believed that art was a powerful tool. He thought art could inspire people to seek enlightenment. Jefferson was not formally trained as an architect, but he had strong feelings about architecture and design. He loathed the buildings he saw in Williamsburg, saying that if they didn't have roofs, they could be mistaken for brick kilns. When he began making sketches to plan his own home, he looked to classical art and architecture for inspiration. He called his neoclassical home Monticello, which is Italian for Little Mountain. He built his home on a hill instead of alongside the riverbank, as had been the trend back then. 
Probably a smart move building on the higher ground, especially now that the world's on fire and water levels may be rising. Construction began by leveling the hilltop in 1768. Of course, Thomas Jefferson was a busy guy, and in 1784, he accepted a position as the American Minister to France. Then he became Secretary of State under George Washington. During this time in politics, he wasn't so focused on the construction of his home. But that time in France was influential. Jefferson was a big Francophile. By that, I mean he was a big fan of the French culture. And he brought back some of the elements that he saw in French classical and neoclassical design. He embraced columns and other elements from ancient Roman architecture, not only to give the appearance of a building firmly rooted in history, but it was also a rejection of the trends popular in Britain at the time. Jefferson's home is designed by a man conscious of his place in history. He designed it as a monument to his ideals of a new nation that would endure through the ages. Jefferson was an Enlightenment thinker, fond of the classics from the great Greek and Roman philosophers, and he was importing a bit of French style as he saw the French as kindred spirits, America's brothers in arms. Of course, while Jefferson was a great thinker and a passionate idealist, it's important to recognize that he didn't always live up to those ideals. The man who wrote, All Men Are Created Equal, and said that everybody has an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, he also owned around 600 enslaved people in his lifetime. He designed the building to be a physical manifestation of the democratic principles he and his new nation aspired to but he built it using the labor of enslaved people who were denied access to those inalienable rights. Today, many people see Monticello not only as a beautiful, symmetrical, neoclassical, architectural design, but it also has symbolic weight. Both of the ideals Jefferson and the new nation aspired to, and some of the ways that he and this nation fell short of those ideals and the progress still to come. Like so much art and history, there's a lot to unpack, lots of layers and lots of different connections that people can bring to it. And now to wrap things up, I want to talk a little bit about Jacob Lawrence and the Migration Series. Jacob Lawrence grew up in Harlem during the Great Depression. In the 1930s, he took classes at a local library branch, which housed a collection of black history, literature, and prints. He studied art, earned a scholarship to the American Artist School in New York. He was a great painter, developing a style of abstraction in line with some of the trends of the day. His work was sort of similar to the flatness of synthetic cubism, but he spoke of the experience of black Americans. While the figures are abstract, the story and the feelings are extremely real. Jacob Lawrence is probably best known for the Migration series. While it wasn't his first narrative series, he made multi-paneled works about Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, and others, the Migration series was his biggest. 
Each individual panel was relatively small, just 18 by 12, but he painted 60 of them. He apparently used tempera paints so he could mix up a bunch of paint and work quickly across all the canvases. He wanted them to have a unified look. Of course, in some ways, the series was depicting a massive shift and disunity within America. The migration the series depicts is the migration of black Americans from the rural south to the industrial north after World War I. He gives us the full spectrum of human emotions. The series begins in a train station as people are preparing to depart. Throughout the series, we see people reading letters from loved ones who had already moved north. We see luggage piled high and people's hopes raised higher as they set out on their journey to a new life. We see those hopes dashed as they arrive in cities, seeing the working conditions, cramped and dilapidated housing. While all the panels feature people, it's not a portrait of individuals, but rather a community. And we see the story come full circle as it ends at the train station once again, with the words, And the migrants kept coming. I think while Lawrence was speaking to his experience and the experience of many black Americans in the period between the wars, this series resonates with a wider audience because it hits at the hope and the promise of the nation, the tragedy of failures to live up to our promise and ideals, but also the perseverance of a hopeful people. They kept coming. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Now, this is the last of the full episodes I'm going to be recording for a little while. I'm going to take a little bit of time for my summer vacation. I will be back with new full episodes in the fall, starting in September. And in the meantime, I will continue to release some new Fun Fact Friday mini episodes. Remember, if you want to hear your fun facts shared on an upcoming episode, you can email me whoartedpodcast at gmail.com. And if you just can't get enough of these dulcet tones in your earphones, check out my other podcast, Art Smart. Season one covered the elements and principles, and season two is going to cover different movements of art. Season two is going to be launching Wednesday, July 20th, so be sure to follow ArtSmart wherever you get your podcasts. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and of course on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.